You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We all know the importance of being a discerning shopper. When you go looking for a car to buy and you step onto the used car lot, you know that you have to exercise discernment. So when you start up the car and you see the tailpipe billow out big clouds of black smoke, you know something's wrong. At least I hope that you know that. If you don't know that, then do me a favor and take somebody along with you next time you go to buy a car. If you open up the hood and you see that there is oil splattered and caked and baked onto every surface in the engine compartment and you can smell antifreeze and then when you pull away you see a big puddle where the car once stood, you know that you've got problems. And if you're like me, then in being a discerning shopper, you not only want to get the best product, but you want to get the best bang for your buck. And that doesn't always mean buying the cheapest product because sometimes... Well, all the time you get what you pay for, and so sometimes you might buy a more expensive product, but you get a better product, and it's a better product for your money instead of getting a cheaper product and not getting your money's worth. And in order to help us to be discerning, we have warning labels on nearly everything that we buy. Have you noticed that? We have warning labels galore. Don't use this hairdryer in the bathtub. You don't need a warning label for that. And I would propose replacing all warning labels with one generic warning label. Warning. Do not be an idiot. (laughs) Those five words would cover you in every situation. That covers putting your hand under the deck of the mower while the engine is running. It covers using your toaster while you're in the pool. It covers all of those. It covers filling up your gas tank while you're smoking a cigarette. Warning, do not be an idiot. That covers nearly every conceivable situation. And we could even elaborate on the warning label and have things like the misuse of this product, if you're an idiot, could harm you or kill you. That would be sufficient as well. Sometimes I wish that churches had warning labels. I wish that there were warning labels on pulpits and in pews and on the outside of churches. And on their signs, warning, spiritual poison distributed here. Warning, false teacher in the pulpit. Warning, error preached every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Warning, ingesting the the, the messages preached from this pulpit could harm you or kill you spiritually. Think warning labels would help us? Maybe I'm not so certain that they would. You see, because I'm not so certain that putting a warning label on teaching or on a teacher would deter anybody from believing them. Because I think that even if you labeled it spiritual poison, there are people who would drink the spiritual poison because they like the spiritual poison better than truth. They like the falsehood. And you can label them false teacher, you can label it false teaching, you can label it a bad church, you can label it an error, and people will still believe it because people love darkness rather than light. So I'm not certain that the warning labels would do any good at all. It might help the undiscerning Christians, a few of them, be able to discern the difference between a true, true teacher and a false teacher. But I'm not sure that it would deter the masses from believing the error. 
Because even if it were clearly labeled, they would still drink it. In fact, Paul said, there's coming a time when men will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Why? Because they cannot endure, they cannot put up with, they cannot stomach or tolerate sound doctrine. And so they heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And even if it is labeled spiritual poison, as long as it is something that people want to hear, people will believe it. And people will follow it. And people will support it. We want to be discerning consumers. And friends, I've said this before and I'll continue to say it. I think that in the church in America, the discernment of the Christian church is at an all-time low. It seems that Christians presume that any church is equal, that everything that glitters is gold, and if it's a church, then it must be blessed of God. It must have God in it, and the more people that are there, the more blessed of God that it must be. That's the assumption. And it seems that Christians don't even want to even start to discern anymore. They don't even want to label false teaching for what it is and false teachers for what they are. And Scripture gives us lots of warnings. In fact, friends, Scripture gives us so many warning labels that anybody who is taken in by a false teacher or taken in by false teaching really is without excuse. There are entire books of the New Testament devoted to warning us about false teaching and false teachers. The book of Jude. The book of Second Peter, that's all those books are about. There are entire books of the New Testament that are devoted to answering certain false teachings, like Galatians and 1 John that answers Gnosticism. We have labels upon labels upon labels in the Scriptures. We have been given all that we need to discern truth from error and to identify false teachers. And one of the best warning passages... One of the best labels in all of Scripture is in Acts chapter 20. And you'll need to have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 29, and 30. Last time we were together in the book of Acts, I should say the last time we were together in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, we stopped with verse 28, where the Apostle Paul is giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, and he is talking to them about the necessity of having a protective ministry. And he says to them that they are to be on guard for themselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. The Holy Spirit had given them the task of overseeing, of shepherding the flock. And involved in that shepherding ministry is the responsibility to lead the sheep, feed the sheep, and to protect the sheep. And it is protecting the sheep that Paul is primarily focused on in verses 29 and 30. And last time we were together in Acts 20, verse 28, we looked at the mandate to protect the sheep. Read verse 28 with me. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. An elder, a shepherd, is given the responsibility of protecting the most valuable thing in all of the world on all of the face of the earth, and that is the church of God which he made his own, he purchased it, he redeemed it, he bought it, he brought it into his own possession with his own blood. So then Paul goes on to say in verses 29 and 30, in verse 28 he gives us the mandate to protect the sheep. Verses 29 to 30 he gives us a description of the men from whom we protect the sheep. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. These are the men against whom the shepherds are to protect the flock. I want you to notice two things about these men. First, we're going to look at their nature in verses 29 and 30. And then we're going to look at their method in verses 29 and 30. Their nature. Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Now we're going to go back to the beginning of that verse, the part where he says, I know that after my departure. We'll look at that in a second. But I want you to focus in on those words, savage wolves. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and they will not spare the flock. Now Paul has been using a shepherding analogy. He likens the church of God to a flock of sheep. And he likens the elders and the overseers that the Holy Spirit has gifted and called to the ministry of oversight. He likens them to the shepherds, whose job it was to lead the sheep from one feeding hole to another, to from one water hole to another, and to make sure that the flock was looked after and fed and protected from the wolves or the bears or anything that might threaten the life of the flock. So continuing with his shepherding analogy, the Apostle Paul likens the dangers that threaten the life and health of the church to wolves. And not just wolves, but savage wolves. Now it is difficult to imagine the Apostle Paul using a more powerful and more vivid word picture than this one of a flock and of shepherds. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You can picture a nice little flock of white, pretty, beautiful healthy sheep. And they're away from the safety of the pen, away from the safety of the farm. They're out in the field with the shepherds who were living with the sheep and and they would have this rotating uh, schedule where one shepherd would stay up all night to watch the sheep during the night hours while the other shepherds would sleep. And all of the shepherds together had the responsibility, one watching and another sleeping and keeping guard and protecting that flock at all times. And they worked together as a team. And so the flock is out in the field and they're eating their grass and they're thankful for the water hole and they're drinking their water and enjoying the sun and the company of the shepherds and they're just sort of going about their day-to-day business, minding their own business, living life, not really paying attention to anything outside of the other sheep that are banging around them. And off in the weeds, in the thicket, behind a rock, sits a wolf. And not just one wolf, but he's a scout for all the other wolves. And he's going to report back to the other wolves that he's found a flock. And he's sitting in the weeds in the thicket and his little green eyes glimmer at night when the firelight catches him just right and he is watching the flock and he is waiting for his opportunity and the only thing on his mind is lamb chops. Dinner. That's what he wants. He's not coming in to pet the sheep. He's not coming in to check the sheep out and see how they're doing. He's not there to count the sheep. He's there for one reason and one reason only, and that is to ravage the flock. And he's watching, and he's waiting, and he is hungry. And Paul calls them savages. They're savage wolves. Barus is the Greek word that he uses. It means heavy, weighty, oppressive, unrelenting. It has the idea of of a burden, burdensome, something that crushes down on you in an unrelenting, unmerciful fashion. They are savage wolves. 
Jesus called them ravenous wolves. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Alexander Strzok in his book, Biblical Eldership, says this, They are called savage wolves, a pack of large, fierce wolves who will not spare the flock from destruction. They are strong and cunning. They are persistent and they come from every side. They are insatiable and merciless in their appetite for devouring Christians. And their presence can only mean death, confusion, and destruction. Does the term savage wolf, that seem a bit harsh to you? Do you know in Scripture that that's about the kindest thing that's said about these men? About the nicest thing in all of the Bible that's said about those who would distort the truth is that they are savage wolves. In the book of Philippians, Paul calls them dogs. Beware of the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. These were men who came into the church of Philippi and tried to pass off this requirement for circumcision in order to be saved. Paul calls them dogs and evil workers. Philippians 3.17, he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their earthly shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. In the book of Titus, Paul says they are rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. He calls them evil beasts, lazy gluttons and liars, He says they are defiled and unbelieving. Both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They turn away from the truth. They profess to know God, but in their reality they deny Him. And then Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. I think Paul was trying to win a popularity contest. What do you think? A little harsh? Savage wolf is about the nicest thing in all of Scripture that is said for them. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says they are of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Harsh words. 2 Peter chapter 2. They are dogs that return to their vomit, and they are swines that having washed for a period of time return to wallowing in the mire. Clouds without rain, promising you rain on a hot day, but they deliver nothing. They're boastful, arrogant, proud, wicked, deceitful, insidious, destructive, Hateful, reviling, prideful, licentious, immoral, greedy, exploitive. Those are all words the Scripture uses to describe these men. Now, savage wolf, that's, that's kind. Those are kind words. Listen, the harshest, most damning words ever used in the Bible are used of those who would presume to pervert the truth of Scripture and to draw away men after themselves. The harshest, most damning words in all of the New Testament, the worst names, are reserved for those who would stand up in the church or outside of the church and teach error or bring confusion or destruction within the church. They are savage wolves, Paul says. God forbid that you and I should feel as strongly about that as the apostles, right? We live in a tolerant age and we want to say nice things about everybody. Because we might have a loved one or a co-worker or a friend who attends that church where that guy happens to be teaching. So we want to say nice things about everybody. We don't want to name false teachers because then people might know who the wolves are. So we don't put names on them. Friends, that's wrong. Hymenaeus 
and Alexander. Their names are recorded for time and for eternity because they made shipwreck of people's faith in the church in Ephesus. Hymenaeus and Philetus, 2 Timothy chapter 2. They had denied the resurrection, saying that the resurrection had already come, made shipwreck of people's faith, and their names are recorded. They were false teachers. I want you to know something about the nature of these men, and you can notice it from the word savage wolves. They're not saved. They're not saved. Paul doesn't call them erring sheep. He doesn't call them misguided Christians who just have a different theological perspective. He doesn't say there are brothers in Christ who we just need to understand a little bit more and kind of work with because they teach some things that maybe you and I don't believe and we need to understand them. And there's a lot of wiggle room on these things. Paul says they're savage wolves. They're not saved. They don't belong in the flock. They are deceivers. They're liars. They're wicked men. They've never had their nature changed. They've never been changed from the inside out, which is why the Apostle Peter describes them as dogs who return to their vomit. Do you know why a dog goes and licks up his vomit? Is it because he's hungry? It's because he's a dog. That's what dogs do. They throw up and they eat it. I had a dog I know. And they are dogs. That's why dogs do what dogs do. They've never had their nature changed. And these false teachers come into the church and for a period of time they take off the dog suit. They put on the sheep suit. But before long, Peter says, they go right back to their licentious, immoral, greedy, Christ-denying ways because they're dogs. And they go right back to their vomit. Just like a sow that washes for a period of time and then returns to its wallowing in the mire. The outside gets cleaned up long enough to put on a sheep suit. But eventually the sow is going to do what the sow does by nature because the nature has never been changed. And the sow will go from the clean corner of the pen where you have put down the carpet and the nice bowl of water and food and it will go right back over to the mud and wallow in the mud. Why? It likes being dirty? No, it's a sow. That's what sows do. I had sows too and I know you can clean them up, but that's what they do. They're unsaved. They don't belong in the flock. Their presence only means destruction, death, confusion, strife, division, dissension, attack, poison for the flock. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, do you think, this is a good question, do you think that wolves know they're wolves? Do wolves know they're wolves? When some of them are standing up in pulpits, which they are today, right now, as you sit here, They're standing up in pulpits all over the country. Do they know in their minds that they're wolves? Are they thinking to themselves, I'm a wolf and I'm here to ravage the sheep? I don't think they do. I think they honestly think they're doing the Lord's work, doing what is biblical, teaching what is right. 2 Timothy 3.13 Imposters and evil men will grow from bad to worse, deceiving and what? Being deceived. Their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I think for the most part, The men who are wolves think they're doing the Lord's work. They think they're really taking care of the flock. I'm sure that there are a couple, a few, some of them out there who know it's all a game and that they're just there to exploit the sheep. But I don't think the bulk of the wolves know they're wolves. That's the nature of these men. Next, I want you to notice the method of these men. Look at verse 29 again. Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in. I know, he says. There's one thing I'm certain of, and it's this. Once I leave here, the wolves will come into here. Once I depart, the wolves will come in. How did he know this? Well, it already happened in Galatia. After the first missionary journey, Paul got back to Antioch where he had left from, 
And he gets back there, and what had happened? Within less than a year, the church in Galatia had completely abandoned the gospel that they had accepted and gone over to false teaching and accepted this Judaistic circumcision gospel. And the Apostle Paul writes to them and says, how soon you have forgotten the grace of God and departed and turned away to another gospel that's not another, but it's a completely different thing. It's unable to save you. As soon as Paul left Galatia, the false teachers were right on his heels coming into the church. And it happened in Corinth. As soon as Paul left Corinth, the false teachers came into Corinth. And so Paul knew, the minute I leave Ephesus, the minute I leave Macedonia, the savage wolves are going to come in among you and they're not going to spare the flock. Now this indicates to us the first thing about their method. They prey on weakness. Why didn't they come in when Paul was there? Why wouldn't they come into the flock when Paul was there? You think he would have dealt with them? Yeah. Paul knew the word. Paul's a good shepherd. He could spot them a mile away. And he could stop them at the gates of the church before they ever got into the church, before they ever had an opportunity to distribute their poison. He would stop them and he would deal with them. Paul was somebody who could teach the sheep and fight off the wolves. And his presence there itself was a deterrent to false teachers. False teachers and wolves prey on weakness. When they come into the church, here's what they're looking for. Weak Christians who are untaught, who think they're learned, but they're not. They're looking for weak Christians who have never been taught, who are unable to discern truth from error, who have been wounded in other churches that they've been in, and they're kind of limping along, just like a savage wolf will pick out the weakest sheep in the flock to attack it first. That's what a false teacher does. They look for somebody who will believe anything that they're told, some weak, untaught, young, undiscerning Christian. They're after weakness. And listen, they'll they'll look for weakness in leadership too. They want to know if all the leadership agrees on something. Because if they can find something that they can divide the leadership with, then they can gain a little following for themselves around their own little peculiar doctrine. And they're looking for spineless leaders, men who won't stand up or men who can't stand up or men who refuse to stand up because the fight's not worth it. They look for weakness. They prey on weakness. And Paul knew. He knew their method. When I leave, they're going to come in. He knew that they were waiting outside the flock in the bushes, in the weeds, and behind the rocks. And they were watching the flock in Ephesus. And he knew it was going to happen in Ephesus, just like it did in Corinth, and just like it did before that in Galatia, that the minute he was gone and he wasn't coming back again, they would know, this is our opportunity. we got to pounce now because the weakness is now. And that's what they would do. They prey on weakness. I want you to notice their twofold attack. First of all, the Apostle Paul says, they will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That is an attack from outside the church. They're going to come into the church. They are outside the church, and they have to come into the church. They're going to attack from outside. And Paul is warning them, these are men who are not within the flock right now. But they're going to want to come into the flock. Now, how are they going to get into the flock? Well, they're going to have to disguise themselves, aren't they? They're going to have to put on the sheep's clothing. Because when a wolf steps up to the door and he says to the person who hands him the bulletin and greets him at the door, Hi, I'm a wolf. I'm here to ravage your flock. Nice to meet you. I'm here to destroy your church. When the wolves wear wolves' clothing, the sheep recognize them right away. This last week I was reading the story of the three little wolves to my youngest daughter. And whenever I read a fairy tale or something like that, I always change the story and mix it up and I act like I'm reading and I'm making stuff up. It's off the top of my head. And the book that we have 
Now, usually I don't read fairy tales in, in preparation for sermon sermons, but this week I did. The book that we have, actually the first page says that the three little wolves went up and they got went downstairs and the sorry, three little wolves. I got wolves on the brain. The three little pigs <clears throat> got up and went downstairs and the mama pig was making them breakfast and she said, It's time for you to leave the house and go out on your own and build your own houses. And so the three little pigs left the house and they went off to build their own little houses. And I always shut the book and say, that's a happy ending, the end. But the kids always insist that I continue on. And what I noticed this last week as I was reading through the three little pigs is that the wolf was unsuccessful. Why was the wolf unsuccessful? Because he was dressed as a wolf. And he said, little pig, little pig, won't you let me come in? And the pigs are able to recognize the wolf. Now, if the wolf had skinned a pig and put on pig's clothing and disguised himself as a pig and said, I'm hungry. I would like some grain. Can I please come in? The the whole story would be different if that's what the wolf had done. The headlines would read entirely differently. He would have had three massive ham sandwiches that day. He would have ate all three of those pigs. But because he did not disguise himself, he was not able to get into the flock. Friends, it's the same thing in the church. The wolves put on sheep's clothing to disguise themselves. They want to smell like sheep, look like sheep, sound like sheep, appear as sheep, act like sheep, and they do this for a period of time. And that's how they get in. That's how they get welcomed into the church. That's how they get on Christian radio. That's how they produce their tapes and their books. That's how they get people to subscribe to their magazines. Because they appear as sheep and they look like sheep. And all of the sheep say, he's one of us. He's got some quirky things, but he's one of us. Nothing could be further from the truth. They had to look like sheep in order to be accepted. Jude, verse 4, says, certain persons have crept in unawares. They came in under the radar. Nobody was looking. Nobody saw them. Nobody noticed them. But certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Persons, Jude says, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are pretty strong words. They've crept in. And you know why they creep in? They creep in to not spare the flock. Look at verse 29. They're coming in from outside among you and they will not spare the flock. They're not going to have mercy upon the sheep. When they come in, they are there to ruin households, Titus 1 says. Certain men must be silenced, Paul said to Titus, because they teach things they should not teach and they ruin households. They destroy people's lives They lead people astray. They have people believing doctrines of demons. And Titus, you need to shut them up and reprove them severely. Because they're teaching things they should not teach. You know, a wolf doesn't care how much destruction he brings into the church. He doesn't care how much division he causes. He doesn't care how much strife he causes. He doesn't care how many pastors fall or elders hit the floor because he's attacked them. They go in with the purpose of raising accusations and and contentions and divisions, and they go in to divide the sheep, and they want to pit one group against another group. And they want a civil war in the church, and they want everybody's focus being on hating the other party or arguing against the other party or not loving the other party. And they are there only to wreak destruction and havoc and pain, and they don't care how much it costs the church, the elders of the church, or the people in the church. As long as they are the center of the controversy... And the center of the strife, that's all they care about. 
They're wicked men. They're deceivers. And they will not spare the flock. There's a second method of attack, and this one's even worse. Not only do they come from outside, but look what Paul says in verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's attack from inside. You're going to be attacked on two fronts, Paul's telling them. They're going to have some from outside who want to get in, and you're going to have some who are already inside the church. They are wearing the sheep's clothing right now, he says to them, and these men will arise from amongst your own selves, and they will speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This is a more dangerous method of attack, and you know why? Because while all the shepherds are watching the horizon and everybody's eyes are looking for who the false teachers are and our focus is out here, somebody from inside stands up with a knife and then it's over. The shepherd has to look in both quadrants, outside the church for those who are trying to get in to bring in their destructive heresies. They have to keep their eyes on the horizon and they also have to monitor what goes on within the flock because there will be men. And friends... I hate to say this, but it's women too nowadays because it's in vogue for women to be preachers and teachers and hold conferences and have radio programs and do all of the tape ministry and preaching and teaching that men do. There will be men and women who will arise from amongst the congregation, from people within the body, amongst the Christian community who have been for years nurturing their poison, nurturing their doctrines of demons, and they wait for just the right minute to break it upon the congregation. So you've got to be watchful. Men will arise from amongst your own selves, Paul says, speaking perverse things. The word perverse means to distort or to twist something. Listen, false teachers normally do not out and out deny cardinal doctrines of Scripture. They don't stand up and say, I don't believe in the deity of Christ. I don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I don't believe in the second coming of Christ. I don't believe that the Bible is sufficient. They don't out and out say that. You know what they do? They use words that all of us like to hear. Words like God and Bible and Trinity and Holy Spirit and inerrancy and resurrection. And then they twist it and they distort it and they make mincemeat out of it. And it's just it's just enough off-center, enough off-kilter that the discerning Christian can look at it and say, there's something wrong with what I'm seeing in that teaching. It doesn't quite line up with Scripture. But most of the sheep don't see that. They gobble up. The poison. Do you remember the cyanide scare of a few years ago? I was just a kid when that happened. Somebody laced the, the Tylenol tablets with cyanide. I was young. Some of you were younger. I was young when that happened. And I don't remember if the guy was ever caught or not. I don't think that he was. I don't think they ever found out who did that. But when he put those cyanide tablets up on the shelf, did he put a big warning label on it and said, warning, this product contains cyanide, and if you take it, it will kill you? He didn't do that. Nobody would have taken it. It would have been found out before anybody died. The danger was that you had medicine, you had poison that was disguised as medicine. That's what the false teacher does. They use the words that we all like to hear, that we're all used to hearing, but they're untaught, they're unstable, and Peter says they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. They don't understand truth. And they don't like the truth. And so they twist it, and they pervert it, and they distort it, and they redefine the doctrine, they redefine the word, they redefine the verse, and they put it on its head so it means something entirely different. Peter says, 2 Peter 2.2, he says that because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. 
Second Peter 2.3, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Second Peter 2.18, he says that they speak out arrogant words of vanity. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.17, their talk spreads like gangrene. That's their words. It spreads like gangrene. Why? Because men will arise from amongst your own cells and they will speak perverse, perverted, twisted, distorted things that look like the truth, sound like the truth, but it's the skin of the truth packed with a big fat lie. It's the skin of the truth packed with poison. you got to be watchful, he said. What's their goal? What's the end game? Why are they doing it? Well, some come in to ravage the sheep. They just want to destroy the flock. Others, for others, they have a different end game. They want to draw away disciples after themselves. you see that at the end of verse 30? They speak perverse things because they want to draw away disciples after themselves. They are interested in turning people's focus from Christ to them. They are interested in gathering for themselves a name or a little group of people who will sort of break away from the church and start meeting in their home who will honestly believe they don't need the oversight of, or the organization of a church or of elders or pastors or preaching or anything like that. We'll just all meet in the home, just this little group. We're the New Testament church. We're the New Testament believers. We're just going to huddle off in the woods. This is how they did it in the early days. And so they want disciples after themselves who will listen to their teaching, listen to their tapes, subscribe to their magazines, read their books, feed off their Internet website. That's what they're after. Disciples. Which, by the way, is why they distort the truth. That's how you get disciples, distorting the truth. Because listen, if you take the Word of God and you preach this pure, unadulterated Word as it was given, and you explain the revelation as the revelation was given, it accomplishes one primary end. It exalts Jesus Christ and displays the majesty and the glory of God for all to see. And it minimizes man and it exalts the Lord. But in order to draw people's focus off the Lord, you have to twist and distort this. Because if you preach this as it is, pure, holy, as it was given, it displays the majesty and the glory of God and people are drawn to Christ. It exalts the chief shepherd. And in order to get people to follow the wolf, the wolf has to distort the truth of God because he doesn't like competition. He can't have people who are after him who see Christ as preeminent. They have to see some teacher who's preeminent. They have to see some teacher who tells them, listen to me, hey, 99.9% of Christians are wrong about this. Listen to me, I'll tell you the truth. This is what it really means. And while you're at it, you should probably leave your church and you should probably follow me. Let's meet at my house. And we'll sing a few hymns, and, and I'll do the teaching. Friends, you ever run across somebody who you think to yourself, man, where has this guy been for 2,000 years, and how did the church ever get along without him and his teaching and his ministry? Listen, know right then, the minute you say that, that you have begun to heap up for yourselves teachers to tell you what you want to hear. There is nobody who has a corner on the truth that's just now being revealed after 2,000 years, who has some ministry that the church has been deficient with for 2,000 years. There was um, a show on a few years back called The Pretender. And the premise of the show was that there are people in our society who are geniuses and they can pretend to be doctors, they can pretend to be lawyers, they can pretend to be airline pilots or fighter jets, 
and there was this one guy who was the main central character of the show who used his ability as a pretender to morph into these different roles and then to do good things with it and to help people out in these different things. He could be anybody. He, could, he was doing brain surgery one day and, and flying a fighter pilot the next day. He was, they were pretenders. And the show began with this statement at the very beginning in the introduction. It said, there are pretenders among us. Friends, there are pretenders among us. The Christian church has been for 2,000 years and will continue to be as long as we're on this earth littered on the landscape of false brethren, destructive men, dangerous teachers, savage wolves who distort the truth, and they are there to ravage the flock and to take away men and disciples after themselves. There are pretenders among us. They're outside the church wanting to get in. They're inside the church looking like Christians, sounding like Christians, and they are nurturing their insidious doctrines, waiting for the perfect opportunity to break them out on the body of Christ. And it happens all over the country. Every Sunday morning, there are pretenders among us. False brethren, false sheep. So what do we do? Do we live in terror? Oh, how do I know that Jim and Dave aren't pretenders? I should be horrified, terrified. Maybe the person next to me is a pretender. Maybe the person next to me is a wolf. How do we guard against such men? We've looked at the mandate to protect the flock, and we have looked at the men against whom we are to protect the flock. But how do we do this? What is the method? We'll look at the God-ordained method in verses 31 and 32 next week, and we'll see how God says we are to protect the flock. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that is there, for the conviction that is there, and for the sufficient warning that you have given us. We pray, God, that you would make us passionate for the truth with a love for sound doctrine and a love for your word and a love for the truth and that you would give us the ability to discern truth from error, to be watchful and to never let down the guard knowing that the minute we begin to sleep and the minute we begin to put down the guard, that's when the enemies of the cross of Christ come in. And they are there to ravage and to destroy the church, but we know that your church is triumphant. We know that your church is sovereignly protected guarded and guided by you in the means and the method that you have ordained. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to do this for our local body and for those true bodies of believers across this country and across this globe who must constantly be on guard for themselves and for all the flock. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.